0: And uh, let's pray, shall we, as we uh, come and have a look at this, uh, this passage together. Um, Father, we've just sung, till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live. Uh, Father, we thank you that it's through the gospel of God. That we can be rescued. Uh, Would you please show us um, in this passage this morning why we need so badly that gospel of God that we might live. All of this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I wonder when um, when you were at school, uh, were you one of the good boys or the good girls? Were, Were you one of them? you know, like like the teacher's pet? Were you you the teacher's pet? Were you the one that always did your homework? Were you the one that was impeccably behaved in class? Uh, Were you the first one to put your hand up? Um, Were you the one that always kept the school rules? Um, Were you one of the good girls or or the good boys? Um, Or were you one of the bad girls or the The bad boys, you know, the rebellious ones who were always being sent out. Were you one of those or or given detentions or forgot your homework or were chatting in class, were uh, generally ignored all of the rules? Were you one of the the bad boys or the the bad girls? You can probably guess which one of those categories I fell into, Um, but I'll leave it to your imagination. Um, But if you were one of the the good boy or the good girl types. You may know just how easy it is for those who appear to live good lives to look down on the bad people. Did you experience that at school? You know the bad people like the criminals or the the bullies or you know people who drink lager that kind of thing um oh I'm not one of them you know uh, uh, they would say i'm I'm a good person i i I keep the rules. You know, I, in adult terms, we might say I, I go to church. I, you know, I, I do charity work. I, I watch period drama. You know, I, I'm, I, I've got, I've got high standards. You know, um, and and so when it comes to thinking about God and being right with with Him, well, then the assumption, you know, can can sometimes be so easily be well, you know, I'm a good person, and so being a good person with higher standards, even religious standards. Well, that must put me in a in a better position with God. You know, it's got to count for something, right? Well, no. No. What Paul is determined to to show us in these these early chapters of of Romans is that before God, everyone, you know, the so-called good people or the so-called bad people. We're all on the same level. Uh, He'll tell us a bit later on in chapter 3, there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're we're kind of coming to this uh, passage, aren't we? Just a few weeks into a little series in in Romans 1 to 4 where where Paul wants to kind of lay out for us what he calls in chapter 1 the gospel of God. Um, We've seen some of the the emphases, haven't we, as we've gone through those those kind of introductory verses. And and particularly, we've seen that he he wants his readers to know that the gospel of God is for everyone. And the reason it's for everyone is because the means by which people are saved, people are rescued, is the same for everyone. And, And that is by faith in Jesus Christ. But as we, we saw last time, the kind of the middle chunk of these chapters is taken up, not, not with explaining this, this great gospel of God, but, but actually with Paul, sort of like a doctor, uh, uh, if you like. Uh, first of all, diagnosing the problem for which the gospel is the answer. Because, of course, n- no one thinks they need a cure if they don't know that they're sick. And, and Paul gets that. And so he lays out in in plain, pretty bold, actually language, uh, the terrible condition of humanity as God sees it. If you were here last week, you'll have you, you'll have you'll have seen that God, uh, as a God who who hates sin and, and cares deeply uh, about it, is is rightfully angry at humanity because in our sin we have suppressed the truth about God so it, it's not just our evil acts our evil thoughts that God hates but it's the fact that we have left him out the, the truth about God that can be clearly seen just by looking around us in the in the world in the created order well we've suppressed that truth we've buried that truth because in our sin we actually want to live without God That's that's God's assessment, we saw last week. It leaves humanity without the excuse of ignorance. We all know that God exists. He's made it plain, but we've suppressed it, and so we failed to worship him, and and we've turned to worship other things instead. And the result of that is that God has given us over to ourselves. His, His judgment on us in the here and now is that he's given us what we want, which is our, our own sinful way, and, and which leads us further and further down into a kind of spiral of depravity, if you like. Very serious picture of sin that he he painted for us last week, wasn't it? And, and it leaves us without hope. It leaves us without excuse, but for the gospel of God, which he wants to tell us about But if you read this passage uh, uh, with us earlier on, you'll have noticed that he's not got to that point yet. Has he that that point of explaining the gospel of God? And that's because even after he's painted this picture of the of the whole of humanity. There there are still going to be those who say, that's not me. Yeah, but I'm an exception to that. I'm not like that. And, And that group of people. Are the kind of the, the smug, if you like, the, the, the self-righteous and often religious types who say, "Oh yes, it's terrible the, 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 the state of the world you know uh, that they, they might freely point the, the, the finger at others, but they 're quick to say or at least to, to think, well of course i 'm not like that." You know, I haven't suppressed the, the, the truth about God and, and, and turned to idols. I, I, I'm a very, very law abiding, uh, sort of moral, uh, religious person. It's, it's, I, I'm, I'm not like that. And Paul's got that kind of sort of hypocritical uh, moralizer uh, firmly in his sights. Um, In in fact, there are there are lots of indications here in the in the Romans that he's he has the Jews of the day, particularly in mind. They they would be the the sort of the main group who would listen to what he's just said about humanity refusing to acknowledge God and worshipping idols instead uh, and say, well, of course, that doesn't apply to us, you know, because we're we're law abiding. We're we're God worshipping Jews. This stuff doesn't apply to to us. So, so it's th- you know, this passage has therefore got particular relevance to them, uh, of course, uh, to the Jews of, of Paul's day who and, and of course to, to those who would exclude themselves today uh, 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 as well on the same basis. But I don't think Paul's exclusively uh, ad- addressing this to them because he's also got in his sights here, I think, all sort of hypocritical, self-righteous moralizers who would presume to think themselves exempt from God's judgment and, and the purpose of these 16 verses here is for is for Paul to say well I've got news for you God is going to judge and, and his judgment is unavoidable and his judgment is just and, and there's nothing you can come up with not not, and not even for you Jews the law there's nothing that you can come up with that will let you off the hook so, so let's have a look at those things. Uh, let's see the implications of them as well, both for the Jews and the moralizers then and actually for ourselves today as well. And, and the first thing I'd love us to see in verses one to five is that God's judgment is unavoidable. God's judgment is unavoidable. So, so verse one tells us um, uh, the people that Paul has got in his sights, doesn't it? And it's notice it's you who pass judgment on another and of course it's so easy isn't it it's so easy to to listen to a passage like the last half of of chapter one there that we looked at last week and to think to ourselves oh yes that's terrible the the state of the world the state of humanity today if if only we could get all these you know these horrible evil immoral depraved people you know out of our communities and out of our world well well then everything would be fine wouldn't it well, if, if if we're tempted to think like that, well, Paul says in in verse one, "Hey you, you who pass judgment on someone else, you therefore have no excuse." What? What me? No, no, you don't. You don't mean me. Yes, you, us. That the ones who tend to be a lot harder on everyone else's sin than we are on our own. That the ones who will be much more critical of others are much more lenient with ourselves. Now, as I said, back in Paul's day, that would particularly be the case with the the religious Jews. They consider themselves far superior to the Gentiles than the non Jews and, and, and would have found it particularly easy there to kind of join Paul in his his condemning their Gentile sins as he was doing in the last chapter. But but as Paul turns on them. And on on others who would have kind of the same smug attitude, uh, as it were, just look at what he says in verse 1. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the same things, the very same things. What, us? Doing the same things? How can you say that? How can he say that us, us Jews in particular are, are guilty of the same things? You might remember back in chapter one that, that idolatry and sexual immorality were two of the main areas of sin, weren't they, that, that Paul concentrated on in that, in that last chapter. And neither of those things was kind of uh, common among the, the, the Jews like they, like they were among the Gentile nations. So they must have felt, I think, terribly affronted. But if you remember, Paul ended chapter one, didn't he, with a kind of wide ranging list of sins of which they would have been equally as guilty as the Gentiles. You can kind of see it in sort of verses 29 onwards of chapter one. And and all this just exposes something, doesn't it? That's common to us all. In that we can easily watch the news or read the papers or scroll our news feeds or get into a discussion with friends and get ourselves all self-righteously worked up about the sins of others in the world whilst ignoring or excusing that very same behavior when it's evident in ourselves. And, And Paul's point here is, well, since you've become such a, you know, such a moral expert on the sins of others, well, you can hardly plead ignorance when the same judgment is applied to you because you too are guilty of the same things in other words like a like a boomerang if you like your so called judgment on others is going to come right back at you at the same time as you sit there and condemn others you're condemning yourself because you're guilty of the same things and and that's that's because it comes right back at you because verse 2 god's judgment falls rightly his his judgment is based on on truth in other words there's there's no partiality with God no he doesn't favor one group over another but he's just his 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 judgment is impartial and it's and it's based on the facts we'll we'll see more of that in a minute so 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 verse three then do, do you really think that you mere humans are going to be able to do the same things as those that you're denouncing and yet somehow escape the judgment of a just and an, and an impartial God yourself. Of course you won't. God's judgment is, is unavoidable. You, you, might, you might be moral on the outside. That The Jews often were highly religious people, morally upright, feeling very superior to the Gentiles uh, around them. And you know, friends, church going people can often feel that same sense of superiority and smugness, right? But God's judgment is unavoidable even for the Jews, even for moral people, even for religious people. So there's there's no room for self-righteousness, no room for, for sort of smug complacency, no, no room for thinking that I am not like that. No, God's judgment is, is it's inescapable. And, and likewise, there's no room for using wrong thinking about God as an excuse. And I, I reckon this kind of wrong thinking about God is, is very popular today as well, isn't it? We, we don't want to reckon with the God of the Bible, and so we have our own kind of God instead, whose characteristics are more suitable for us. So we like to focus on his, his kindness, his tolerance, his patience, and whatever. We imagine, you know, like, like Voltaire uh, said, that, that God's going to forgive. That's his business. And and so we can just carry on in our sin. We can carry on down our own path because God's much too kind and tolerant and patient to ever think of judging anyone. He's a God of love, isn't he? Well, yes, of course he is. But to carry on sinning with impunity because, well, you know, forgiveness is, is God's business. Paul says that means we presume, we presume on, on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and, And patience. Why is that presuming? Verse 4. Because God's kindness. Is meant to lead you to repentance. To to turning away from sin. Do you you see? God shows us kindness. So that we can repent of our sin. Not carry on doing it. He demonstrates patience. So that we'll have the space. In which to turn to him. Not consider ourselves somehow immune. From his, his judgment. And again I think. Paul has particularly got the Jews of his day in mind here who who consider that because of their status, you know, as God's old covenant people, uh, they would somehow not face his judgment. But Paul's saying, no, God's judgment is is unavoidable. And to regard God's kindness and God's patience as a convenient excuse for carrying on with your sin, well, that's to show contempt for God's kindness, his patience. Uh, And it's a contempt, verse 5, That stems from a hard and impenitent heart or a stubborn and unrepentant heart. And and so it will lead to them storing up God's wrath, a a wrath that will be unleashed when his righteous judgment is revealed. In in other words, Paul says "This, this wrong, this contemptuous thinking about God will not keep you from his judgment. In fact, far from it. It will only make his judgment that more certain. So, of course, there's a a direct, you know, first century application here, isn't there, to the the, the Jews of of Paul's day. He's saying, don't think you can carry on sinning. And just because you're his old covenant people, you'll somehow escape his judgment. You know, he's gone to great pains in in chapter one, hasn't he, to show that the gospel is for everyone because everyone is in need of the gospel. And that means the, the Jews of the day as well. God's condemnation of humanity because of its sin is not just his condemnation of Gentile humanity. It's it's all humanity. And the Jews were as much in need of the gospel and are today as, as Gentiles are. Without God, they too, without Jesus, they too will face God's judgment. But But I think we can legitimately throw the application wider, can't we? Because, of course, <laughs> we too can be guilty of the same thinking, can't we? And and particularly, I think, if we're in a kind of religious or church-going culture. In in other words, we cannot simply carry on sinning with impunity and rely on church attendance or taking communion or the fact that we've been baptized or our position in the church or that we grew up in a Christian family or that we have inherited a a, a Christian heritage somewhat as a nation. We we can't rely on those things or, or anything else other than personal repentance and faith in the gospel to save us. See, God's judgment is, is unavoidable. Second thing I'd love us to see, though, verses 6 to 11, is that, is that God's judgment is just. Okay, and Notice verse 6 here. He will render to each one according to his work. So God's judgment is going to be just. It's going to be a level playing field. It's not kind of one rule for the Jews and one for the Gentiles. It's the same for everyone. But then look at why it's just, verse 6. It's just because he will render to each one according to his works, okay, according to what he's done. Do you see that? God's judgment is according to works. And the more awake among you might be thinking Has Steve lost his marbles? Has the pastor become a heretic? Uh, surely Paul said in the last chapter that we're made right with God by faith. Is, is he now saying it's, it's, it's not by faith, it's by works? I mean, is that, is that Paul lost the plot or is it just Steve? Um, well, you, you don't need to report either of us to the heresy police. Because um, what Paul affirms is, is certainly we are justified, we're made right with God by faith. In Jesus Christ, not by our works. He's very clear on that. But notice that what he's talking about here, he's not talking about justification here, about being made right with God here. He's talking about judgment here. And what he's saying is that we will be, yes, we'll be justified by faith, but we will be judged by what we've done. And and that fits exactly, actually, with what's said all through the the scriptures. In fact, you'll notice verse 6 is in inverted commas. It's because Paul's quoting from the Old Testament. Probably Psalm 62, uh, verse 12, I think. But, But the idea is all over the scriptures. And, and if you follow me through these verses, verses 6 to 11, look, you'll, you'll see his train of thought because he, he, want, he really wants to make this point. And, and so he lays it out one way in verses 6 to 8, and then he reinforces the point by making it in reverse in, in verses 9 to 11. So, so have a look. Verse 6, God renders to each one according to his works. In other words, he's impartial. He he judges everyone according to what he's he's done, which means verse seven, those who do good will receive eternal life. And verse eight, those who do evil, those who are are self-seeking, who don't obey the truth, will receive God's wrath. See that? And then in reverse, look, verse nine, there will be wrath or there'll be tribulation, distress for those who do evil. And verse 10, there will be glory and honor and peace for those who do good. Because, verse 11, God shows no partiality, no favoritism. Do, do you see? He kind of really wants to make the point, And so he reinforces uh, the, the point there by doing it one way and, and then making the point in reverse. To, to reinforce the point that God is just in his judgment. And so everyone will be judged by his works. Not because your works save you. But because your works are the evidence that you have been saved. And a just God, an, an impartial God, will not show favoritism. He will judge on the facts. He'll judge on the evidence. Uh, so, so look at verse 7 and verse 10. If, if your goals, if your actions, if they're God-centered, you know, if it's his glory, his honor, his approval, his presence you're seeking, well, then the destiny is eternal life. But... Verses 8 and 9, if you're kind of self-centered, self-seeking, rejecting God's truth, therefore following evil and not good, then your destiny will be wrath and fury. It'll be tribulation and distress as as God's judgment is unleashed. And and then notice in verses 9 and 10, he's addressing the Jews again here, I think. He adds it's first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. You notice that phrase? In other words, Just like back in chapter one, verse 16, when he affirmed that the gospel is for the salvation of everyone, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. Now he affirms, too, that the rewards and significantly the punishments of the day of judgment, they will also be first for the Jew and then for the Gentile, because verse 11, God does not show favoritism. So, so the gospel has come first to the Jews. It's through them that God's revealed it to the, to the world. But this doesn't give them a favored position because the punishment for rejecting God will also be first to the Jew. You see, God's impartial. Jews are not favored. Gentiles are not disadvantaged. God is just in his judgments. And, and everyone, Jew or, and Gentile, they'll be judged according to the evidence of their works. And if the evidence is of a God-centered life, then eternity awaits. If the evidence is of a self-centered life, then God's wrath and anger, his judgment awaits. And friends, I guess we can see readily enough, can't we, how that would have shaken the the Jews of Jesus' day, wouldn't it? Kind of shaken them out of their, their smugness, maybe, their complacency. I guess we can see that. But friends, more importantly... What about us? What is the evidence of of our lives? And and I want to emphasize again, we are not saved by our works. We can't work our way into a right relationship with God. We receive it by grace through faith in what Jesus has accomplished for us on the cross. But friends, the person who has received Christ through faith will be the person who is characterized by a God-centered life. I don't mean everything about our lives will be kind of centered on God. You know, we always struggle with our sinful nature. But friends, the, the, the direction of our lives, the drift of our lives, the aspiration of our lives, the priorities of our lives will be towards God. Our desires won't be those of the world and our lives will not be those of the world because we desire to put God before self and our lives will reflect that. So there's a, there's a kind of, there's an opportunity here, isn't there? To kind of take stock of our lives. To, to, to ask ourselves, what do our lives say about who we are? What do our desires say about who we are? What, what is it that we really want? Because in the end, we will get what we really want. If we are God centered, if our hope is in Him, we will have eternity with Him. But if the evidence of our living is that we don't ultimately want him, then we will have our wish and we will forego him forever. God will judge us on the evidence for he is just. And and, and then briefly, let's just have a look at the last point, verses 12 to 16, which is which is what about what about the law then? What about the law? Because you can just imagine, can't you, the, the, the Jews' reaction at this point. You know, Paul's, Paul, Paul's been rather forcefully telling them that, that when it comes to God's judgment, they are actually no better off than the Gentiles. So we can anticipate the objections, can't we? Well, what do you mean we're, we're, we're no better off than the Gentiles? What about all the, all the privileges, all the blessings that the Jews have as a result of the old covenant? The, the Gentiles never had those. And, of course, in in the first century Jewish mind, the greatest of those blessings was that of the Old Testament law. They had the law, whereas the Gentiles didn't. And and Paul, look, he not only anticipates that objection, but he sort of tackles it head on as well. He shows them that their possession of the law doesn't give them an advantage over the Gentiles. Because, firstly, it's not possessing the law that counts, but obeying the law, and secondly, that actually the Gentiles do have the law, in in a certain sense. Um, see if you can follow his his thinking. Look in uh, in verse twelve, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. So, so what Paul calls the law. In those verses is is the law of Moses, of course, given to the the people of Israel on on Mount Sinai. And and this law wasn't given to the Gentiles. It was only given to Israel. So the Jews, therefore, sit under the law. And therefore, when Israel sins, it sins under the law and it's judged under the law. But the Gentiles were not given the law, so therefore they are apart from the law. And when they sin, they do so apart from the law, and their judgment will be apart from the law. But notice that the result is still the same. Whether you're a Jew under the law or a Gentile apart from the law, you will still face God's judgment. Why? Why? Why doesn't the fact that the Jews possess the law give them an advantage? Well, he tells, tells us that in verse 13. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. So again, this is not saved by the law. It's still saved by faith. But the evidence against which the judgment will take place, it's not possessing the law, it's obeying the law. It's doing the law. But, but what about the Gentiles? How can they be judged by their obedience to the law when they don't have it? Oh, well, that's what verses 14 and 15 are about. And, and Paul says, actually, in a sense, they do have the law. That they might not have a copy of the, the books of the law like, like the Jews did. But look at how they live. Look at how somebody lives. The life he lives shows that he has some sense of God's law, even without possessing it. Not, not not all of it, of course, but, but some of it, at least. Even though he doesn't possess the, the books of the law, he'll know that it's wrong to murder, to, to steal, to, to take another man's wife, to be disrespectful to his parents, and, and so on. You don't need to possess the books of the law to know those things, verse 15, because the work or the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, and their conscience also bears witness in other words as just as a human being God's law to a certain degree is stamped upon the heart and and the conscience confirms it. it's part of our our, our makeup it's it's in it's in the heart not not to the same degree as the 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 Jew with the law but nonetheless to a certain degree everyone has the law because God's written it in our hearts Can, can you see what he's saying He's saying that whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, everyone has some form of the law. And the law that you have will be the law that you are to obey and the law that you will be judged against. But, of course, the problem is that neither group lives according to the law that they have. And so both groups are guilty and both groups will be judged. And friends, this this applies to us. No one escapes the judgment of God. And even if we claim never to have read, never to have seen, you know, a a, a Bible, the, the, the requirements of God's law, even if we claim never to have seen it, that doesn't excuse us because God has stamped his law to a certain degree on our hearts. And so we do have some sense of right and wrong, and our consciences confirm that. But still we disobey. So still we are uh, guilty before God. No one escapes the day of judgment. Verse 16. That will take place when Jesus himself will judge. Not just our public sin. You know, the, the sin that others have witnessed. But our secret sin as well. Friends, this is, this is devastating stuff, isn't it? Do, do, do you see what he's doing? What he's doing is systematically stripping away. Every defense, every excuse, every argument that that we or anyone, Jew or Gentile, could put up to say that this doesn't apply to me. And friends, this is because he, he knows that until we understand that we are deserving of judgment, until we understand the seriousness of our sin, until we believe that God's judgment is just, We'll never understand how much we need the gospel of God. How much our only hope is not to trust in ourselves, but to turn and embrace Christ, embrace his gospel, trust him and what he's done. Because apart from him, there's there's no hope. But in him, there is there is no condemnation. I I read an account this week of a, um, a university student, he He invited his non-Christian friend to come along to a a, a Christian event that the the Christian Union was hosting. It was actually Rico Tice was was, uh, preaching him of of, of Christianity explored fame. And and the guy came. And and so they invited him the next night as well to to another event. And he came to this one too. Only it turned out to be a really uncomfortable evening because Rico uh, spoke very boldly from this passage. and, And he didn't pull his punches. You know, before he explained the gospel, he explained clearly about sin. He warned about judgment. And, and some of the Christians wondered if he was a bit kind of heavy. And when the meeting finished, the, the, the Christian turned to his non-Christian friend and said, I'm really sorry if that offended you. And there was a kind of a, an awkward silence. And when he eventually turned to his friend, it was to find his, his friend's eyes full of tears. Because the tough message had hit home. And after speaking a bit more with Rico that night, the student became a committed follower of Jesus Christ. And and he later said he'd been very unhappy with how he was living, that deep down he knew he was wrong. But because Rico was honest enough to share the bad news, that young man came to believe the good news. And, friends, for us, if we're Christians this morning, I think that story is just a powerful reminder, isn't it? That even these toughest sections of scripture still release the power of the gospel today as they've always done should we pray let's pray father as we've um, as we've unpacked these verses from your word we um we want to acknowledge again that they are they are tough to hear they're tough to speak because they speak of the reality of our sin the unavoidability and rightness of your judgment on our sin. But Father, we know that you do not give us your word to harm us, but to help us and to show us that only the gospel will save us, but that the gospel will save us for it is your power to save. So please would this give us confidence this morning to, to place our trust in this gospel for ourselves. If we've not done that yet, may it give us confidence to proclaim this gospel, including the bad news that makes the good news so good. And we pray this in the name of your Son and our Saviour, the Lord Jesus. Amen.